Well, good evening. If you have your copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, I want you to find the book of Ephesians. And when you find the book of Ephesians, if you don't mind, I want you to find the fourth chapter, Ephesians chapter 4. It's a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. It is such a blessing for me and Lily to be here with you tonight. And thank you for praying for our little boy. Many of you have had children with asthma and asthma issues. We thought he would be discharged this afternoon. The doctor felt otherwise, and so they're going to keep him one more day. And we're grateful for that. Laurel sends her love. She certainly wanted to be here, not because she loves Pastor Stephen, but because she loves Rebecca. And so she, she wanted to be here. It is an honor and a privilege for me to get to see you because I have heard of you. We have talked of you in my yard or in your pastor's yard. In fact, it speaks to what I want to share uh, tonight. But I've already been encouraged by the gift of song. I love Southern gospel music. Just the other day, I was my little girl who's going to be a gifted worship leader. She has a beautiful voice. I was introducing her to George Yonts and the cathedrals on my iTunes account. I actually, I actually got saved at a fifth Sunday night singing in Shady Grove, Alabama. There are more deer than people in Shady Grove, Alabama. My dad pastored a small Southern Baptist church bivocationally. We had 30, 40, 50 people. My wife went to First Baptist Montevallo, Alabama, where we did life. They had 150. I thought they were a megachurch. And so I got saved at a little Southern Baptist church. We had a fifth Sunday night singing. Most of my church have never heard of a fifth Sunday night singing, and most of my folks don't know what a Sunday night is, to be honest with you. But, but a, fifth, a fifth Sunday night singing, I, I got saved. And so just like you, man, I was raised on that stuff. This morning, uh, Tuesdays is a big administrative day for us at Church at the Mill, the church that I pastor in Spartanburg. And I was in a staff meeting. I had about 65 staff members. We're sitting around. We're talking. And we were talking about Noah. And the devotion was on Noah. And that song hit me that the Statler brothers sang. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then the tenor would go way up. Ernie Hawson, I told my whole staff about this song. They all looked at me like a calf at a new gate. So at the end of staff meeting, I went on our GroupMe app and I shared on Spotify the Statler brothers, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, Noah found grace. So they have a Southern Gospel quiz tomorrow in our meeting. I'm, I'm going to ask them. I want you to know it's a privilege to live by your pastor. He talked about being a little bit uh, nosy. I, I did what any good neighbor would do when I moved into a community. I started watching these people. Started paying attention to them. I didn't do anything inappropriate. I went through their trash a few times. I hadn't found a single beer can, I promise you. And then one night I noticed that things were a little odd, things were a little off, and I knew that he and Rebecca were about to get in a fight, so I snuck up on the back porch. Again, nothing illegal, and just tried to listen to see what they were doing. And I realized the joy of their marriage, because your pastor, this bold man of God, was saying, yes, honey, whatever. Whatever you say, baby. Whatever you say. I thought I was the president of marrying above yourself, and then I met your pastor, and he certainly married above himself, and I'm so grateful for their family and what they mean to our lives. Early on in our ministry there to make neighbors, Lily and I decided we would bake cookies one Christmas Eve morning. And so Lily went over to deliver the cookies, and I knocked on the door, and Rebecca came downstairs. She had a house coat on, no makeup. Her hair was going in different directions. And I said, Said, would you? I said, need you some cookies. 
So later I texted her and I said, I'm going to give you a half hour warning before I come because you sure are pretty. I wish you'd make it. And from that day forward, she's been the sister I've always wanted. One of my greatest joys in life is loving Stephen and picking on Rebecca because she gives it back to me. And I'm grateful for that and I'm grateful to be with you tonight. When we talk about you, the thing that I love the most is how much your pastor loves you. When you do ministry and you serve and you lead and you lead ministry conferences and you share and teach in seminaries and you meet people in ministry, you can quickly find out the character and the integrity of a man by how he talks about his church off from Sunday. And one of the things that he's continually told me is that he believes that God has positioned you for something significant. It's obvious that he's positioned you physically. Your real estate is unbelievable. Simpsonville has come to you. I'm experiencing that as well. Our church was started in 1988 with 30 people in it. In 1988, 30 people in the living room of a small neighborhood on the west side of Spartanburg started what was then Anderson Mill Road Baptist Church, and a retired pastor and his wife started it as a mission of the Southern Baptist Association there in Spartanburg. And in 1988, these people started. They didn't have hardly anything. They started with just a vision to reach people, to encourage people. And in fact, their first vision slogan, and, and we always fool with verbiage, but they said, where broken hearts are mended. They just wanted to reach people with the gospel. Little could they have known that from 1988, the west side of Spartanburg just exploded in growth. In fact, Spartanburg and Greenville are growing together. They went on a date, got married, had a baby. It's called Greer. And so, so they're all, so they're all, it's all just growing together. And then, and then Greer just started sagging down into Simpsonville. It's just all one big blob of people. And, and, and interestingly, as much as we believe in missions, I have a team from my church in Mongolia tonight. In fact, they're about to wake up. And when they wake up, they're going to a village where there's one known believer among 3,000 people. So pray for them tomorrow, which will be your tonight as they share the gospel. So we want to go everywhere that the Lord would allow us to go. But God is bringing the world to us. It's amazing to me the nationalities and the different ethnicities and the demographic breakdown of the people. Every single week, I am meeting families from New York and California, and they're all saying, we want to come here. And I go, we want to have you. Just don't vote like you did out yonder and mess everything up. And so we, and they say, well, that's why we're here. And so we, we're so thankful for that. So I know that God has positioned you geographically, and that does matter. I always tell people at church growth conferences, there are three things that grow the church, the Lord, leadership, and location. There are men who serve faithfully in rural communities and never see exponential growth, but it's because the community's not exponentially growing. It's not because they're not faithful in serving. My father never pastored a fast-growing church. My father never pastored a megachurch. My father never had the privilege to, of earn, earning a seminary degree, and yet he was faithful and raised two sons who now lead. My, my brother's the pastor of Rushy Creek Baptist Church in Taylor's, and I pastor in Spartanburg. And so I, I, I know that... Faithfulness doesn't always equal numerical growth, but sometimes in his kindness and in his favor, the Lord will position a group of people, that's you, a location and a leader, and he does something special. And I speak from experience tonight. I'm not an evangelist. I love evangelists. I'm grateful for their gift. That's not what God called me. I prayed about being a missionary. That's not what God called me to be. 
I'm grateful for those. I serve with some of the most incredible pastors I've ever met on my staff who do various things. But I knew in seminary that God had called me to shepherd a local church. I love the church. Now, I often remind people theologically the church is plan A and there is no plan B. The way God chose in his sovereignty to reach the world with the gospel was through broken people like you and me who were saved. And once we come to know the Lord, we're grafted together in the body of Christ, and we do life together, and we're bound together by our faith in Christ and the two G's, our generation and our geography. We were born at this time in history, and God has placed us in this community, and here we are. And my, 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 what a place he's given you. Even the pulpit I stand on is in a building that is a result of God's provision. You didn't find it, it found you. When one church stops preaching the gospel and dies, another church has the opportunity to see what the Lord is doing. And so I love the church. And your pastor and I talk a lot about the church and ideas and vision and growth. And growing churches is not always easy because not everybody in the church encourages, understands, or grasps grasp in their heart what growth means. It's why I take you to the book of Ephesians tonight. I'm an expository preacher. I just preach through books of the Bible verse by verse at our church. And I'm in the book of 1 Corinthians right now. I'll reference that in a few moments. But I wanted to take you to one of my favorite chapters in the book of Ephesians. It is because this is the chapter, if you had to drill down, this is the most churchy chapter in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4 is really the blueprint according to the apostolic authority of Paul through the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit of how the church should look and work. And oftentimes, when you talk about church, you typically are going to hear a leader talk about a church having a compelling vision. And that is a good thing. To be honest with you, if you Google the top 10 churches in Simpsonville, or if you Google the top 10 churches in South Carolina, you're going to find that most of them do a pretty good job of communicating their vision, their core values, the mandates they have on people's life. And much of the language is the same. But one of the things I think that we often miss when we think about the vision of Bible Baptist Church, when we think about the vision of a New Testament church, is we miss where our vision ultimately comes from. Often we focus on what we are to do, and it is a good thing for us to focus on what we are to do. I can say our vision at Church of the Mill backwards and forwards. I teach it to every new member. I talk about it almost every Sunday. We want to be a place and a people of new beginnings and real relationships, and we believe this happens when you gather, you grow, you give, and you go. And we take those verbs directly from the New Testament and we pound that vision into people because we believe the greatest joy in growing a church is putting people in the best possible position to serve the Lord. If you know how to serve the Lord and I know how to serve the Lord and we serve the Lord together, then together God will honor our service. And I understand that. But even before I ask you to do anything, even before your pastor challenges you about the next five years, even before you contemplate the amazing growth around you, the beautiful piece of real estate you've been given, the spirit of God's love in this place, the pastor that God has led to leave you, the staff around him, the provisions of God in your financial security, even before you look at all the goodness of God, you have to ask yourself, what has he given his church? And in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul points out three gifts that are the root of the vision of the New Testament church. And I want to show those to you. I want to show those to you by first pointing out that ultimately God is the one who has given us our unity. Unity is not uniformity. 
Some of you have served in the military, and you know the very first day that you show up to boot camp, everybody gets the same haircut, same color underwear, same bunk bed, same meal plan. You don't get to pick. They hand you a tray. Same schedule. That's uniformity. So much uniformity that the clothes you wear is called a uniform. Uniformity is about eliminating individuality. Unity is something different. Unity is when a group of people who are very different come together around something larger than themselves. Let me show you what I mean beginning in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Paul has dealt with the grace of God through faith, the mystery of the gospel in chapter 3. Listen to verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 5. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So Paul says, I want you to walk with the Lord. He's talking to you individually. And he's saying, I want you to do this with humility. And I want you to do it because it matters that you keep the unity. I remember sitting in seminary the first time I went. And the professor said to us, boys, where there is no unity, there is no gospel. I don't know a tremendous amount about independent Baptist churches, though I've had the privilege of preaching in many of them. I've been a Southern Baptist all my life. Thank you for letting one of your wondering souls come and preach to you tonight. But I can tell you that tonight in South Carolina, 85% of all Southern Baptist churches are dying. They're plateaued or dying. 85%. I I can tell you that the vast majority of churches in our communities have not seen growth in years, and yet they have the same Bible, same doctrine, same commitment. And there are people within the church who do genuinely love the Lord. Your grandmother's church that hadn't grown in years doesn't mean that her faith isn't real. And churches face all kinds of challenges, but what you find when you do an autopsy of a dead church is that before doctrine came to play, unity died. Where there is no unity, there's no gospel because the unity is the outward testimony of the inward manifestation of the indwelling Holy Spirit that you and I both have. In fact, one of the things that Paul does here is he points out all that we have in common. We're a different lot. We all come from different backgrounds. I mean, even a few of us tonight are from Gaffney, bless God. Just hearing them sing was a blessing to me. I hadn't met many Christians from Gaffney. You been to a Friday night Gaffney game? Even the Christians in Gaffney stopped being a Christian on Friday night. Listen to what he says in verse 4. He says, verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the Spirit there is capitalized. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit that your editor offered. Look at verse 4. I want you to count silently the number of times I read the word one. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. How many ones? Seven. What's he doing? He's laying the foundation for unity. Unity is not the absence of preferences. But notice he doesn't work. He doesn't say anything here about one style of music. He doesn't say anything here about one outfit, one color carpet, one worship flow that you never deviate from, one structure of one committee. He doesn't say anything about that. 
He talks about what all Christians in all places at all times have in common, and here's the reason why. It's not that he thinks that we will never disagree. It's that when you really begin to grow and you stretch, and God is stretching Bible. God is going to stretch your church. He's going to challenge you. He's going to grow you. You're going to have to do things differently because of scale. You're going to have to learn and be challenged that the way you've always done things may be different. The doctrine won't move. The Bible won't move. Your preacher won't move off the gospel. But how you reach people for Jesus to the degree to which you never negotiate the preaching of the Bible has to change and adjust with the fast-paced culture around us in order that we can communicate God's truth to people, not negotiating, not moving away from preaching and confession and the Lord's Supper and water baptism and the belief in the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Not moving away from calling people to repentance, not moving away from declaring the truth and the greatness of God, but delivering that message into people's lives through a multitude of programs and changes and growth adjustments, through stretching yourself out. And when those times come and things look different and the pace is fast and you hear people begin to say, preacher, I saw folks today, I didn't even know their name. I didn't recognize, would you believe somebody sat in our seat? And when all that begins to happen, there is the seedbed. It's not, not the ultimate fruit, but the seedbed of struggle, of disagreement, of disunity. And when that happens, you take a step back before you react and you go, wait a minute. What do I still have in common with all these people? I just read you seven of them. Look at them again. One body. There's just one church. One spirit. Only one Holy Spirit. He's not busted up into pieces. When you get saved, you get all of him. That's not the question. The question is, does he get all of you? But you get all of him. Even as you're called to one hope. There's only one gospel. Only one name. Only one name. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. And one God. And Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. So when you begin to think about unity at Bible, remember that if you have it, it's a gift of God. And if you ever take it for granted, you've stopped appreciating the gift. Just as a pastor, not as an evangelist, not as a gifted revivalist, just a pastor. I'm an everyday pastor. I would say to you, that the greatest threat to this church is not a lack of people. They're everywhere. There are thousands within a mile of this church tonight. The greatest threat to this church is not negotiating your doctrine. You have stood on it for years and you have a preacher that won't move off God's word. The greatest threat to this church is not new age liberalism that causes you to redefine or negotiate with the truths of God's word. That's not the threat. The threat is that when you begin to see explosive growth, the enemy will come at your unity. And while you cannot control the attitudes and the preferences and the behavior and the words of your brothers and sisters, you can absolutely control yours. And so when you find yourself at that crossroads, and I hope and pray you get there, which means growth is challenging you. When you find yourself at that point of tension, stop, look this passage up, Ephesians chapter 4, the first few verses, and be reminded, look at the unity God's given us. I have more in common with dead Christians I never met than any living lost people I come across. I have more in common 
with the believer from a different culture who did church differently but loves the Lord Jesus, has been washed in the blood, filled with the Spirit, and their name is in the Lamb's Book of Life than I ever have with someone who might look like me, drive a truck like me, and love the things I love. And when we remember that, just remembering that is the fodder, the fuel for the Holy Spirit to help us to protect the unity of the bond of the peace. God has given us unity. Secondly, though, remember that the vision of the church is rooted in the fact that God has given us our ability. Something happens in this passage is pretty fascinating. By the time you get to verse 7, you would assume, based on the first six verses, that he's referring to individuals. He is. In fact, if you look at it in the original language, he's talking about the church together, what God has given us. But then he gets real singular in his language in verse 7. But unto every one of us. So verses 1 through 6, we all have one body, one faith, one spirit, one Lord, one God, one hope. Verse 7, but each of us, and look what he does. But unto every one of us, grace is given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. So there is this introduction of God in his grace, not only saving you, but implanting in you a measure of grace that is a gift for the church. Now, there are really two gifts in this passage that are pointed out. The one that's most common to us is the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and we can talk about those at length. But there's another gift as well, and it's the gift of godly leadership. But before he talks about godly leadership, and before he talks about the bestowing of spiritual gifts, he first paints a metaphorical, a poetic picture of what it looks like. So in the ancient world, when a king would go off to battle, if he would conquer a new area, if he would conquer an opposing enemy king, he would then, of course, plunder the worth and the wealth of his defeated enemy. But the good kings would come back to their kingdom and as they marched into the gates of their own kingdom to celebrate their victory and to commemorate their greatness and to show their love and loyalty to their people, a people they've been fighting to defend, they would give away the plunder of war. Paul understood this and so Paul took that earthly picture and he painted it with the gifts of Christ. Look what it says poetically beginning in verse 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now he, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth. He's talking about Christ's descent into sin and the cross. And he says, he that descended in the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things. So Christ descended to earth. He died, he descended to the grave. He rose, then he ascended as a victorious king. But he's not a stingy king. He's not a dictatorial king. He's not a king that keeps us at a distance. He's a king that wants to be my friend. And you know what my friends give me? Gifts. Pastor, I want you to remember that at Christmas now. I want you to remember that. You know where I live. You know what I like. Academy gift cards, anything like that. I'll be fine. Get Rebecca something first, but then get me something. People who love people give gifts. So, so then watch what happens in the passage when we switch back in verse 11 to the present. He says... And he gave some 
apostles, they wrote the New Testament, and some prophets, they wrote the Old Testament, and some evangelists, those are people called out to share the gospel in in an anointed way. I think missionaries certainly often have the gift of evangelism. And then he says, he also gave some pastors and teachers. In the original language, that's just one word, the role of the man who stands, and the primary role is to preach and teach and to encourage the people of God. This is why the Bible says in the qualifications of elders, a man must be able to teach, because that is his gift. So the Lord gives the church spiritual gifts, and that when you're saved, God gives you gifts to use, and then he gives you the gift of leaders to help you develop those gifts. And when gifted leaders develop and preach to gifted saints, all of a sudden you begin to see the motion of the church work, which is exactly why we find it happening in verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints. Now, another way you can translate that is the maturation, the spiritual maturity. God's goal for Bible Baptist Church is not to just fill it up. It's not to just be attractional. Attendance matters. We count people because people, knowing how many people are on our campus helps us make good decisions, but spiritual maturity matters. And the interesting thing is, is that if you are in an area where the population is growing, if you grow people spiritually, spiritually growing people will grow your church numerically. Now, all my life I've been told I'm a shepherd. That's what the Bible says. In fact, we call a pastor a shepherd because the Latin word for shepherd is pastor. It's the root word. And so as a shepherd, that makes you sheep. I'm not your shepherd. You have a shepherd. But I am one shepherd serving another congregation, another flock tonight for this brief evening. And so the shepherd's job in the ancient world was to lead and to feed, to protect and nurture Sometimes a shepherd has to get in front of the flock to say, I know it looks a little strange, but follow me up this canyon. Sometimes a shepherd is in the middle of the flock, comfort him. Sometimes he's got to get behind the flock and use his staff. Sometimes he has to push, sometimes he has to pull. He is with the people, but even the greatest shepherd in the first century. And even today, if you travel to the ancient world, you'll see this. Never before in the history of shepherding, in all of shepherdom, has there ever been a shepherd Lay down and give birth to a lamb. Shepherds don't have sheep. Healthy sheep have sheep. So when you grow your people spiritually, you'll grow your church numerically because to grow in the Lord is to begin to want what he wants and he wants your loved ones saved. So Paul says... He gives the leaders and he gifts the people so that the people can do the work of ministry to encourage spiritual growth, not among the elite, not on the praise team, not among the deacons or the Sunday school teachers, but among every member of the church, which is why the passage continues to unfold so beautifully and so simply. Look what he says in verse 12. For the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry... For the edifying of the body of Christ. So the saints do the work. Pastors are to work beside them, but pastors can't work on their behalf. The saints do the work. It's our ability that we use for the edifying of the body of Christ till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto perfect man, unto a mature, full-grown man. He's, He's 
picturing a boy becoming a man. When you bring a baby boy home from the hospital, as your pastor and his precious wife did a few weeks ago, they made fun of us for all of our children. Mm -hmm. And then they made an announcement. But when you bring a baby home, especially a baby boy, they, they don't do anything. Some of you are like, yeah, I married him. They don't do anything. I mean, they do nothing. They eat and sleep and the other. But immediately we begin to note when they start to put on a little weight, their cheeks get fat and their little fat rolls on their legs get fat rolls on their fat rolls. And then they start to army crawl and move around, roll over, pull up, and, and they walk. I remember that first child, we have six. I remember that first child, we so couldn't, couldn't wait for him to walk. And after we saw what that led to, I kicked the other ones the minute they stood up. <laughs> My fourth one didn't walk until he was 18 months old. We were disappointed about that. He's not walking. No, he's not walking. Don't you pray for him to walk. Just lay there. It'll be fine. But two weeks ago, my oldest boy, who just graduated from Woodruff High School, great-looking young man, he's got muscles. He works out. I remember a few years ago when he began becoming a man, he wouldn't just walk by and hug me. He'd you know, check me a little bit. Check me a little bit. Of course, I'd say anytime you feel froggy, you just jump. You just try. My dad's a little bitty fella, and I got bigger than him quick, and he said, son, the day you can whoop me, don't. Not if you want to live. You have to sleep and eat, and I can end both of those. So as a young boy becomes a man, we see before our eyes the transformation of a six, seven, eight-pound baby to a young man, and moms, you know most of your sons tower over you. Their shoulders are broad. Their biceps are firm. and They would do anything to protect you. And by the end of your life, the baby boy that you carried will carry you. And most of the time, he'll carry your casket. So Paul's seen this before, and he's saying, that's what we want for the church. People get saved. Their lives are all a mess. They're messed up. They, they don't understand. They don't know. And that's okay. We're patient with them. We understand folks aren't always going to show up with all the answers. They're going to come with their mess. They're going to be strung out. They're going to hurt. They're going to make bad decisions. They're going to act immature. They're going to come on and be on fire for the Lord one day, and the next day there's total inconsistency, which is exactly how babies act. But we want to grow them to be full-grown men and women in the faith. And the fascinating thing about that is this is not a passage to preachers. Like I know how important it is to set under the preaching of God's word. I've watched my church be transformed through 19 years of just faithful preaching. I'm not a strategic leader. I'm not a methodological genius. We've made a lot of mistakes. We just get up every day and try. But I've watched the word of God transform people's lives. And so I'm a big believer in strong pastoral leadership and so grateful tonight that I knew when I drove over I was coming to a church that is well-led and well-fed by your pastor. But this is not a passage about pastoral leadership. It's not even a passage about preaching. It's a passage about the body of Christ recognizing that you have been given the ability to make this work. Now, we are dependent on the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We are dependent on his work. There is some stuff we cannot do. But we can never look to heaven and say, you didn't give us any ability. 
Because not only has he given us the gospel and his son and his word and leaders upon your salvation, he didn't just take away your sin. He gave you spiritual gifts that he intended for you to use for the edifying and the building up of the church around you. And so the question you have to ask is, and you can be 14, 44, 84, how valuable are you to Bible because you're utilizing the gifts that God has given you? This is not for you to set and soak on your blessed assurance and just be here. It is for you to get involved and engaged. Several years after I came to be at the church, we had a work day. We don't get to have work days anymore because it's a little bit different scale now and we, we just... It's, it's just harder with a larger church. But we had a work day, and they said, we need to put a sign up. Well, I showed up. I was a pastor. I, I did a little construction work in college, you know, a little bit. And uh, they paired me with, with, with uh, Jimmy Foster. Jimmy Foster was in his late 60s. He had to retire early, blue-collar guy, had heart failure. He was exactly what you would expect. An old man, his son was red. I mean, his, his skin was red from the sun, and a lot of wrinkles. He had a straw hat and a T-shirt, and... In his pocket, he had his pencil and his calculator, and he had his blue jeans on. And I said, here's what I think we ought to do. We had to pour a little pad and put up a little sign, real simple. And so Jimmy and I worked all day together, and I made a friend that day. And so I got to know him and got to follow him. And I noticed that when we transitioned our Wednesday nights away from a prayer meeting that was dead, I like living prayer meetings, but I've been to some dead ones. When we transitioned away and we really begin to focus on young people, we ask our senior adults to stop coming to a Bible study they could come to at 9 a.m. and be on campus serving and helping us with young people who couldn't be there at 9 a.m. And we went from 30 people on Wednesday nights to 500 in just a few months. And so Jimmy, his job was cooking with the other senior adults for every young people that comes onto our campus. And his job specifically was scooping ice and putting it in the teacups. Somebody here's got that job. You're like, I do that. They always ask me to do that. Oh, they don't ever ask me to do anything smart, but I do that ice, right? And so Jimmy scooped that ice. Well, I'd always walk through, as pastor should. Thank you. Thank the kitchen crew. Appreciate the work y'all were doing. One day, Jimmy's in there scooping ice with a coat and tie on. He looked like an independent Baptist. I mean, yeah, he looked better than he had a coat and tie. I said, Jimmy, what are you doing, man? It's Wednesday night, man. We're just glad you're here. He said, well, I had a funeral. Uh, one of my friends died. I said, well, Jimmy, good gracious, man. You had a funeral today. You, you didn't have to come tonight. He said, no, 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 no. This is my way of serving the Lord. I can't teach these children, but I can scoop this ice. A few years later when Jimmy died, I was getting ready to preach his funeral, and the Lord led me down to the kitchen, and I got that ice scoop. And I told that story at his funeral, and you know I've been to many funerals where the Family has presented a flag or a plaque. We gave that family that ice scoop. They had a box built with a glass pane over it. If you go in the living room, his wife has that ice scoop. I just want to say to you that if you're a member of this church, if you're praying about joining this church, stop praying. You've been dating long enough. Join. But if you're part of this church, do something. Do something. There's a direct relationship between how much you're missed when you're gone and how much you do when you're here. Folks in my life that get their feelings hurt the most for not receiving ministry weren't given ministry before they got sick. When you minister to people, you don't ever have to worry about being ministered to because your gifts from the text will have been such a blessing to other people they can't wait to bless you when you're down. 
And I, and I would just rec encourage you to recognize that if you believe it is God's will for Bible to reach thousands, it's going to take the hundreds that are here doing something. Which leads me to my final point. It's very hard to put me up against a food truck. I know who's going to win that battle. God has given us our unity, one faith, one Lord, one hope, one baptism, one spirit. God has given us our ability through spiritual gifts and spiritual gifted leaders. But this next verse really changed my way of viewing church. God has given us our responsibility. Now, now, now I, I'm not a free will Baptist. I know many who love the Lord. I know this is not a free will Baptist church. I, I believe in the sovereignty of God. I believe salvation is of him. I did not save me. He saved me. That's why Paul said, I've been adopted. What orphan goes and finds his parents? No, no, no. The parents find the orphan. He saved me. Now, his salvation in my life was unlocked when by faith I reached up and received his grace. And I have a Bible that doesn't settle the tension. On one hand, the Bible would say to me, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, and I believe that. But the Bible also says to me that God is knowing of all things, past, present, and future. And I believe the Bible doesn't settle the tension because the Bible wants us to live in the tension of recognizing that ultimately God is in control, but we have a responsibility. And all my life, I've been told, no, 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 God grows a church. If you'll allow me to qualify that, I would say that's halfway correct. Yes, God saves. Yes, God blesses. Yes, God is the one who provided his son. Yes, God gives us our unity. Yes, God gives us spiritual gifts. Yes, God gives us spiritually gifted leaders. Yes, God provides. But this passage says in the last, pa in the last portion of it, beginning specifically in verse 16, but if we were to go right back up to verse 14, he says, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie and wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things which he is the head, even Christ. Now you would think at this point that Paul is about to go on a crescendo. He's elevated Christ and he's saying we grow to him. We're not manipulated and moved by new teaching, foreign teaching, teaching that's not of the scripture. We know where we stand. We know what a man is. We know what a woman is. We know what marriage is. We know who Christ is. And so we're not moved by that and we're growing into him. But no sooner has Paul painted the picture in the literature of Christ that he says this in verse 16. From whom the whole body... So he takes his eyes off the head and back down to the church, the body of Christ. And look what he says. Fitly joined together. Some of you remember when your body was fitly joined together, by the way. Fitly joined together and compacted. Some of you remember that too. By that which every joint supplieth according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. Let me translate that. When every part of the body does what it's supposed to do, here's our last phrase maketh increase of the body until the edifying of itself in love. Let me give you a simple illustration. So Laurel and I had five children. We began the process of adopting. The adoption failed. It was not our fault. The country we were trying to adopt from closed down. We were reeling. We were hurt. We'd lost a good bit of money. There was nothing we could do. There was nothing our agency could do. 
We trust the Lord, but we were hurting. And I was driving to a bird hunt. And my wife called. And I said, what are you doing? She said, I blocked in the bathroom. I'm sitting on the floor. I'm looking at two red lines. I said, what? She said, I'm pregnant. I said, do what? I pulled over. I was so shocked. I saw a Walgreens. I pulled over, went, bought a test, took it myself. We were pregnant. And Laurel gave birth to a little girl named Evie. She's so beautiful, so demon-possessed at the same time. When she misbehaves, I tell Laurel, it's the reason is, the first five, we prayed about. Lord, we'd like to have a child. Thy will be done. Lord, we'd like to have a child. This one, we had no prayer over. This is like Ridge. We had no prayer over him. He just happened. And when you take a newborn to their checkup, the first thing they do just a few days after he, her, and mom were discharged is they make sure they're gaining their weight back. And then the first thing you do when you take a baby to a pediatrician, first thing, you weigh it and measure. And they tell you what percentile the baby is. I can't deny any of my children. All my boys have a 95th percentile in skull circumference and a 5% percentile in leg length. Here I am. If I'd have grown into my head, I'd have been 6'5". You've never seen a 6th grader more disappointed than me. I had a size 12 foot. I said, 6 foot 2, here I come. 5 foot 9, I stopped. I think the Lord made my feet long because my head's so big. I'd wobble over if I didn't. But Evie was too small. She wasn't even registering. Six months came. She's little, wasn't gaining weight. Twelve-month checkup came. Our pediatrician loves the Lord. She knows my wife well. <laughs> Laurel's an experienced mother. Still wasn't even on the chart. She was just petite. So they asked all the questions. She eating, she's sleeping, she used the bathroom, is she playing? She's doing everything developmentally she's supposed to do. She's just not gaining any weight. We get to 12 months, the pediatrician says, I'm a little concerned. We get to 18 months, and the pediatrician said, I'm really going to have to encourage y'all to go see a specialist. Now, why did she do that? It's not because she wanted to scare us. She's a dear friend. It's because her job is to make sure that child is developing. And you know what babies are designed to do? Grow. Anything that's alive and healthy grows. It grows. And while everything in life has a season, your body, my body, when something is young and healthy, there is a problem if it is not growing. Now, fortunately, she did catch up, and she's perfectly healthy tonight. But we monitor children's growth because babies who are healthy are supposed to grow. Now we know why so many churches aren't growing. They're not healthy. God hasn't abandoned them. The gospel hasn't changed. The Holy Spirit's still alive and well, and the Bible's still true. The people are not doing their part. Paul says, when every part functions, it makes the body grow. When you pass Bible on the highway, Don't you dare say, that's where I go to church. You say, that's my church. Sink or swim, it's on me. It's not on them or them or pastor. It's on me. I am responsible to bring my gifts, spiritual and financial, emotional and physical, to bring my gifts 
so that this church is a body where every body functions and makes the body grow. I'm preaching on 1 Corinthians right now, and it's a difficult passage because it's chapter 5, and I'm dealing with sexual sin in the church. It's not a passage about sexual sin. It's not a passage about sex. It's a passage about a church that was tolerating sexual scandal and sins. It's a terrible thing. And when I preached on it, I talked about how people's lives are affected. One in four women have been sexually molested or abused. One in six men. These are the statistics that we know are true. So statistically, 25% of the ladies here know exactly what I'm talking about in some shape or form. I knew with a church our size, I would get some emails of women telling me their story once I brought it up. And God had worked in so many of their lives, but one email brought me to tears. Angela, you don't know her. I share with her permission. Certainly wouldn't share her last name. You'd never pick her out. She's in her mid-50s, attractive lady, happily married to her husband, raised two beautiful daughters, very successful. She said, Pastor, thank you for preaching on that subject. She said, my mother was gay. And at one point, she had a longtime girlfriend who began to molest me when I was a little girl. She threatened violence if I told anybody. And as a seven-year-old girl, I'm quoting her email, I didn't have the faculties mentally to sort through the mess, and so I said nothing. For whatever reason, Pastor, my mother decided to take me to church when I was about eight. And when I went into the little Sunday school classroom, the teacher hugged me and told me about Christ and his love, and my heart just burst when I heard about someone who would be safe and who would take care of me. She said, a few years later, I walked down the aisle of that church and I got saved, and the abuse didn't stop. My mother's sinful life didn't stop, but I knew that Christ was with me. And it's fascinating when you hear a story like that because we immediately want to go to the wickedness and just judge it. We want to go to her and protect her. But what stood out to me, I guarantee you that Sunday school teacher in that little church had no idea what was going on in that little girl's life. But she studied that lesson and she taught her. You don't know what people come into this room. You have no idea that within, within a mile of this building, somebody's contemplating and ending it all tonight. And they're never going to go hear a revivalist. You can put a tent up, bring some sawdust, book a group, and hire the best evangelists you can find. They're not coming. But they work beside you. They're in school with you. They're in your neighborhood. They're in your life. You're the one that God is expecting to reach them. And if you do that, you don't ever have to worry about Bible being healthy. May God add his blessing to the preaching of his word. Let's pray together.